We're going to jump right in, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. In our last study, we left off with Jesus speaking in parables to and about the rebellious chief priests and Pharisees and leaders of the Jewish people. And we're told in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. (laughs) When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Now I'll tell you something, up to this point, Jesus is being awfully gracious with these men who are rejecting him. He's being gracious, gracious such that rather than call them out and embarrass them in front of the people, he is trying to get their attention through these parables. And they know he is. They know exactly what he's doing. Now, without a chapter break or a week in between, remember Jesus was speaking in parables and now he continues on to press the point. This is the third in a series of parables that he's been telling. Back in chapter 21, he told the parable of the two sons. Then he goes on to the next parable, parable of the landowner. But the third parable that we're going to look at tonight is broader. He broadens the scope beyond dealing just with Israel. He turns his focus to the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice that right at the beginning, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is a broad-based kingdom. It's not just the church. It's not only believing Israel. It's not just tribulation saints. It's all of those put together. It's the larger group, the kingdom of heaven. This parable is a great dispensational parable in that not only is Jesus dealing with things, an outline of what has been, but he's outlining what is yet to come. Let's look at it. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited. Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways. And as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. The word went out. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Translated, the man said, Duh. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now I'm going to sketch over this pretty quickly, because Lord willing, Sunday we're going to delve into this parable and really spend some time and try and understand what it is Jesus is saying in this great dispensational outline that He's painting for us. But for now, I want to point out a couple of things to you related to this parable. And the first one is has to do with changing relationships. Changing relationships. You cannot accept the invitation to the marriage feast without changing your relationships. 
You can't do it. You can't come into the hall. You can't enjoy the marriage feast without it impacting or changing your relationship. Sharon and I finally saw fireproof. About 30 or so of you all saw fireproof here on, on Valentine's Day. They showed it here in the barn. I know others of you have seen it. How many here tonight have seen the movie Fireproof? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay, that's great. Those of you who haven't, go buy it at Walmart. As soon as we're done tonight, go directly to Walmart. Pick up this movie and watch it. It's really, really well done. Christian movie. But there's a moment in it, the critical moment in the movie. And I mean, this is a spoiler for you, but it won't ruin it. It's still worth seeing the whole movie. But the critical moment, at least for me, in the movie is where Caleb Holt, who is the, the prime character, this firefighter, and his father are having a conversation about his marriage that is in dire straits. Wife doesn't love him anymore. She's rejecting. He, he really is trying. With his father's help, he's trying to get through to his wife. He's on this path of doing things for her that he's never done before, trying to change his behavior so that it'll change hers. And she is absolutely rejecting him. No, I don't love you anymore. And he's sitting here at this place that used to be an old Christian camp. And as he's talking and he's saying, I have done everything I can to get her attention. And I've tried to show her love and she's showing me nothing. And she's rejecting everything that I'm handing to him. His his father is walking in slow motion. And his father ends up standing by this cross. And he says, how can I get someone, how can I get her to pay attention and, and to love me when I'm doing all these things for her? And his dad is now leaning against the cross and he says, that's a good question, son. And it hits him that he has been doing the exact same thing to God that his wife is now doing to him. Rejecting every offer of love that the father has given him. And his father in the movie points this out. That Caleb, your rejection of God is the prime issue. And he's been trying to push his father off. He's like, Dad, don't, this is, that's not what this is about. His father says, yes, it is. That is what this is about. It's the first time of several that I cried in the movie. Because it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You cannot be in relationship with Jesus Christ and not have it affect your other relationships. We try to deal with our relationships separate from Jesus. We try to fix that which is broken. We try to find restoration separate from Jesus. And you can't do it. If you're not right with Him first, you will not be right in any other relationship. It comes back to Him. You can't accept God's invitation to the marriage feast without it impacting all of the relationships in your life. Remember the fruit we talked about on Sunday? That's the deal. The fruit of a relationship with Jesus is always seen clearly in my relationships with other people. That's where the fruit is born. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You realize you cannot even see the fruit of the Spirit unless you're in relationship with somebody else. That's where it's seen. Love. You don't see love by itself. A person standing in their bedroom. I just love me. It doesn't work. The only place you see love is as it's born out in relationship. Joy is shared. Peace is understood between people. Kindness and goodness and all these things, the fruit of the Spirit, is born out in relationship. The fruit of thankfulness, Hebrews 13, 15, is born in relationship. Though my thankfulness and my worship is directed Godward, it always impacts my manward relationships. People want to be around someone who has a thankful heart. Someone who's bitter and always complaining doesn't really attract people too well. The fruit of the gospel. That's the most obvious one. 
Colossians 1, 5, and 6, we talked about this on Sunday too. The fruit of the gospel, the evidence of that fruit is saved lives. We will know in this place that the gospel message that you are speaking day in and day out is bearing fruit when this place is filling up with people who had not known Jesus before they walked in the door. Fruit of the gospel. The fruit of righteousness is seen when we make the right choices and do the right thing by both the Lord and by people. All of this fruit is borne out in our relationships. And John said in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so the first thing just to note is that the accepting of the invitation to the marriage feast changes relationships. It also changes your clothes. Changes your clothes. You can't come to the marriage feast of the sun without changing your clothes. Proper attire is required. Now, I'm a jeans and sweatshirt kind of a guy. This, what I'm wearing right now, this, if I could wear this on into eternity, I'd be a happy dude. Comfortable, casual, that is, I have one suit. One black suit. I hate it. I look good in it. But I hate it. And I only wear it for two occasions. Weddings and funerals, that's it. Joy and sorrow, that's it. There's a proper and an improper attire to wear to this wedding. Look back again at verse 11. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how'd you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. How do I know what to wear to this wedding feast? What if I show up in my jeans and sweatshirt? What if I'm in the improper attire? How do I know? Scripture makes it clear. Isaiah 64, verse 6, tells us all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Not to be gross, but the Hebrew for filthy garment is literally a menstrual rag. That, gang, is the picture of how we clothe ourselves. That's the picture of our deeds, of our behavior. We have all become unclean in our lives. That's improper attire. You do not want to be wearing your stuff when you come into the marriage feast of the Lamb. So what do I do? Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels and that's proper attire. Now you're looking sharp when you're wearing the robe of righteousness which only comes by the grace that God gives you. I remember a story my grandmother used to tell about my cousin Eric. Eric lived and grew up in Indiana. He was a favorite cousin of mine and I visited him a few times. But but Grandma told the story when I was little about Eric when he was real little. Got his first cowboy outfit for Christmas. I mean, the whole thing, the chaps and the vest and the hat and the holster and the plastic gun. I mean, he was, he was all good to go. And he disappeared into the bedroom. And he put all this stuff on. And they, did, they were wondering, where's Eric? Where's Eric? He was gone for like half an hour. And finally, my grandma tipped over to the door of the bedroom and looked in and saw him standing in front of a full-length mirror. And he was just pulling out the gun. And she heard him say, I look sharp. I really does. <laughs> And that's the deal, the proper attire. You look sharp when you're 
wearing the robe of righteousness. You really does. You look good in grace. Each and every one of us looks so good when we're attired by the grace of God. But man, when we try to wear our stuff, no, I'm a good person. I'm just going to put on my good person vest. Man, filthy rags. Filthy rags. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now listen to that. Because that can be confusing. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, Rick, you're saying it's not our acts, though, that that we clothe ourselves with. Listen again to how John writes this. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. It was given to her. And these are the righteous acts of the saints. Do you realize that every act of righteousness that you perform in this world, in this life, is given to you by Jesus to perform? You didn't come up with it. It's not born out of your attempt to be righteous. The good things that you do that are counted and credited to you as righteousness, that look like that robe of righteousness, Jesus gave you to do. His grace graced you to do. I love that wording. It was given to her. And by the way, Eastern tradition, that's what happened at wedding feasts. If a rich man or or a great person, a person of note, threw a marriage feast, it was customary for them to provide wedding clothes for anyone who didn't have the proper attire. It was there at the door as you came in. And so this man in the parable had no excuse to be sitting there without proper wedding attire. He rejected what was offered to him. And in that rejection, he sat there only wearing what he had to wear, what he had to show. God, in the same way, provides the clothes for the wedding feast. He provides the fine linen, white and clean. And it's going to be more comfortable than jeans and sweatshirts. I promise you that. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is not generated in the nature of man. It is germinated in the nurture of the Spirit. Let's say that again. The fruit of righteousness. It's not generated in the nature of man, but germinated by the nurture of the Spirit of Christ. Well, more on that on Sunday. Four questions now are going to come up. He finishes these three parables, and four questions arise through the rest of this chapter. The first question is a political question. The second, a doctrinal question. The third, an ethical or legal question. And then the fourth question is a royal question. Question number one, the political question. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, hang on a second. This is interesting because the Pharisees hated the Herodians. They despised the Herodians. The Herodians were a political party. They were closely aligned with Herod, who all the Jews in Israel hated They were a party of politics. The Pharisees were a religious sect, absolutely anti-Herod. So how do these two people, these groups, this political party pro-Herod and this religious party anti-Herod, how do they form together? Why would they be joined together? Because they had a common enemy in Jesus Christ. The Herodians feared Jesus for his possible political power. Not that Jesus was political, but they feared that he might be. And of course the Pharisees They feared Him for His religious power. And so with Jesus as their common enemy, these two anti-groups, 
They form an alliance. And by the way, please don't ever confuse your political affiliation with your Christianity. To be Republican is not to be Christian. Someone said a while ago, and I think I probably mentioned this at one point, someone said, oh yeah, you guys are a Republican church, right? (laughs) Are my political leanings that obvious? (laughs) Being a Democrat is not being a Christian. Your political affiliation only has to do with your Christianity in that you look at what the party platform is and you make a moral decision. But being a Republican and voting Republican doesn't make you Christian any more than being a Democrat and voting Democrat makes you a Christian. It doesn't mean either one. But we can confuse that and tie the two together. And I've got to warn you against that because any time religion allies itself with government, watch out. It doesn't work. I am one who says it is not the best thing for this country to be ruled by a Christian party. Because any time religion gets into power, it gets corrupted. And we see it again and again throughout history. 325 A.D., Constantine came into power, he pulled the Christians along on his side, and that was when the church began to spiral down. It would take literally centuries, if not millennia, for the church to extricate itself from Rome and be once again the pure, non-political voice in this world that we're called to be. So, should I not be involved with politics? I didn't say that. Just don't be confused. Your faith is your faith. And your political alliances are a separate thing. Hopefully impacted by your faith. But don't think being a Republican, or being a Democrat, or a Libertarian, or whatever you are, don't think that that's what's going to make the grade for you. Again, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they agreed on one thing. They hated Jesus. Boy, those are strong words. They hated Jesus. They wanted Him dead. So this common enemy affiliation comes to Jesus with forked tongues and flattery. Verse 16. They said, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any butter, butter, butter. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar? Or not. (laughs) Watch out when someone comes to you with a voice of flattery while bringing division. If there is division coupled with flattery, back away. Paul was very clear about this. Romans 16 verse 17. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Jesus Christ but of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We all can fall prey to having our ears tickled by being told by someone oh you're, you're such a godly person I just got to share this with you. What I see the shepherds at the bridge doing right now, I'm just having trouble with. And I knew you'd understand because you're such a compassionate, gracious, and loving person. Watch out. Flattering speech often will accompany division and dissension. Don't be fooled. Well, Jesus is not. He's one step ahead of him. They say, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? It's a political question. They knew that the populace of Israel hated 
seethed with, with, with anger against the heavy oppression of Rome. They knew this whole idea of taxation was a bad thing. That the, the Jewish people would be upset if Jesus answered one way, and of course the Herodians and the political people would be upset if He answered another way. Jesus is way ahead of them. Verse 18, He perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? <laughs> I love that Jesus calls them as He sees them. I love that He's not afraid just to say what they are. You know, He doesn't mince words. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. That's one of the greatest and most freeing teachings of Jesus, especially when it comes to taxation. (laughs) With a stroke of a pen... Our new president just signed into law the biggest single spending package in the history of our nation. And it's happened like that. I would imagine there are a lot of Americans who think it's probably still being debated. It's not. It's over. It's a done deal. It's law. When it's all said and done, it'll be well over a trillion dollars in new spending intended to stimulate the economy. Will it work? I don't know. I have my opinions, which I'm going to keep to myself tonight. I will share this. I was watching Huckabee the other night. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he said, you know, they, they signed this thing into law so fast, they didn't even name it. So in the interest of the public good, I've come up with a name for it. This is Mike Huckabee speaking. He said, I'm going to call it the Congressional Relief Action Program. <laughs> And if you didn't get that, please don't laugh out in church on Sunday morning. It'll come to you. <laughs> Congressional Relief Action Program. Anyway, it's very funny. In fact, you gotta, if, if you have your computer at home, you've got to go on YouTube and, and, and just YouTube Huckabee talking about the Congressional Relief Action Program. It's hysterical. It's very funny. Anyway, you think we have it bad with this new spending, with this new trillion-dollar-plus bill, when it eventually comes, we're going to get taxed for it. We've got to pay for it somehow. We got nothing on what the, kids, the children of Israel had, the people of Israel. Their taxes were heavy. They had what was called a ground tax. The ground tax was one-tenth of all their grain and one-fifth of all their oil went directly to Rome. That was just the ground tax. Then they had the income tax. The income tax was a flat 1%, not only of everybody's income, but of everything you owned. Which means if you bought something... In the previous tax year, you still paid on the value of that, 1% of the value of it. 1% of everything that you had went to Rome on top, top of the ground tax. Then they had the poll tax, which is what they're talking about here. Is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax? That was a tax simply for breathing. If you were alive, you paid it. Every male ages 14 to 65. Every female ages 12 to 65. Why the females earlier? Well, because, you know, they mature faster than us guys do. Simply for breathing and living. And I've told you, watch out, because the carbon tax is coming. It's coming. When eventually you're going to have to pay for your carbon output. And that's what the poll tax was. They had a wheel tax. Rome employed. This is a smart one. We have a wheel tax, actually, every time we go to the gas pump. It just hit me. We got a wheel tax in Washington. What is it, nine cents, ten cents? 
The wheel tax, you are taxed per number of wheels on your cart. Which is probably why a lot of people in Israel started going to wheelbarrows, because it was cheaper tax. Not to mention the temple tax, or the Lord's call to all Israel to tithe. That was still there. Christians, when taxes go up, don't worry. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And you let Him provide. Don't worry about it. But our taxes may go through the roof. Okay. You think God didn't see that coming? You think other cultures, other nations of the world never had incredible heavy taxation and the Lord wasn't aware of the needs of His people? God is not bound by the American dollar or the euro or the denarius. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But don't miss this part of it. This is often forgotten. Give to God the things that are God's. People will say, okay, I'm going to be fair with my taxes. I'm not going to you know, rip off the IRS. I'm going to pay what I owe. But they forget the last half of Jesus' statement. Give to God what is God's. Okay, well, Pastor Rick, what is God's? Everything you own. Everything is God's. You want to give to God what is God's? You give Him everything. It all belongs to Him. As Christians, we have a dual citizenship. We have an earthly citizenship with responsibilities. And we have a heavenly citizenship with greater responsibilities. Sadly, that citizenship is often ignored. That heavenly citizenship. We often ignore it when it comes to money. And yet Jesus said in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, earthly money, who will entrust the true riches to you? God calls His children to be faithful both in their paying of their taxes, giving Caesar what Caesar's, and in their giving to the Lord what belongs to the Lord. And you know what the Lord asked of Israel? 10%. You keep 90 and give me 10. That's a pretty good deal. Cosby thinks so. Jesus also said in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now listen to what Jesus says, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And a lot of Christians are great in the area of justice and mercy, but are neglecting financial faithfulness. Jesus said it's not either or, it's both. That you give justice and mercy and fairness, but you also give to the Lord what the Lord asks for, Not because the Lord needs your money, but because your faith needs to trust the Lord. Our heavenly responsibility gang is far more, however, than just financial. What happens when these two citizenships that we have, earthly and heavenly, what happens when they clash? Well, very simply, my allegiance must always first be heavenward. Which is why we're meeting here tonight, even though a cease and desist order was put up. Even though an enforcement order followed that. Now, yes, right now there is a stay on that order while we go to the hearing examiner. And that's going to happen sometime in March. You just found out today. But I have a responsibility to my heavenly citizenship that supersedes and always will supersede my earthly one. And I'm not saying that to be a stinker or to be contentious. 
I'm just saying if given the choice, when man says stop teaching the Word, I will not stop teaching the Word. When man says stop gathering for worship, I will not stop gathering for worship. When man says stop fellowshipping with other Christians in that barn, I'm not going to do it. I can't. Now you don't have to. We all have that choice. And I'm not trying to be a rabble-rouser. But I'm saying, gang, that I will not neglect my heavenly responsibility for earthly ones. In all other cases, I am to be subject to the governing authorities. And even as we go through this, and I've shared this before, I'll say it again, even as we go through this whole hearing examiner thing, we are not doing it contentiously with the county. We're not being mean-spirited. We're not trying to get into a fight. It's not about getting into a fight. And by the way, the county's been very good that way too. They're not trying to fight. We're not being persecuted. They just have their rules and they're trying to figure out, well, how do we keep those and do this? And we're saying, well, how do we do this and fit that? We're going to figure it all out. But my heavenly responsibility is my greatest. Render not only to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Well, the dust is barely settled as the Pharisees depart, having asked their political question, and here come the Sadducees with number two, the doctrinal question. Verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned Him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up the children for his brother. And that's true. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. That's where that comes from. Now here go the Sadducees. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second, and the third, down to the seventh, which makes me wonder about this woman's cooking. I don't know what other option there may be there. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Is Cosby bothering you or can you guys focus? Okay, Because I can go out there and kick him in the rear right now if I need to. Okay. Alright, we're good. Okay, this question by the Sadducees was a total farce. As a matter of fact, they were in bringing this, making fun of the whole idea of the resurrection. As Matthew notes, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. So in bringing this question to Jesus, and everybody knew that, Jesus knew it. And in bringing him this question, they are making light of something Jesus never made light of, and that is the resurrection. In verse 29, the New American Standard translates, Jesus is saying, you guys are mistaken. That's very nice. It's not what Jesus said. Well, it is kind of. What he said actually was much stronger than that. The word there is planao in the Greek and it means deceived or led into error and sin. Not only are you guys mistaken, you guys are led into sin. You guys are way out there. You are in absolute error. How were they deceived? Two ways. They did not understand the Scriptures and they did not understand the power of God. And it's interesting to me how often these two things go hand in hand. Not understanding the Scriptures and not understanding the power of God. 
Paul warns Timothy of the person who, in 2 Timothy 3, 5, of the person who is holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Talking of an end-time situation, and this is shocking because the implication is it's insiders. It's church people who are holding to a form of godliness but denying the power. Leafy fig trees with no fruit, as we spoke about on Sunday. These are people who have a pretense of godliness, but they don't believe it for a moment. The Sadducees. The Sadducees. They reject the power of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the miracles. And gang, if you reject the power of God, the Scriptures themselves become lifeless. And if you reject the Scriptures, the Word of God, then the power of God becomes like a circus sideshow. It becomes all about hype, not about truth. Acts 23 verse 8 tells us of the Sadducees. They say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There's a big difference between the two. The Pharisees were legalists, but at least acknowledged the power of God and the Scriptures in totality. The Sadducees, they didn't believe any of it. They didn't buy it. The only thing that they clung to was Torah law. The first five books. They held to that. They didn't believe the rest of it. So Jesus gives a brief explanation of marriage and the resurrection and then goes straight to the heart of their faith problem. Verse 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now we don't become angels. He said we're like angels. There's a similarity there. You don't all of a, all of a sudden grow little wings on your back. It's been a long, you know, long time uh, misunderstanding of this. We're like the angels in that we are fully outfitted with eternal bodies. And that's going to be great. The throat is not going to get sore and the voice go away. When we have the eternal bodies, we're going to be able to shout from the mountaintops all day long, praises to God, and get up the next morning and do the same thing again. Well, actually, we'll just do it all the way through the night because we won't have to sleep. These eternal glorified bodies will be awesome. But as far as marriage goes, one of the primary reasons for marriage will cease because reproduction will no longer be necessary. I know that probably bums some of you out, but it's just the way it is. Does this mean my marriage will cease? Does this mean since there's no marriage in the resurrection that Cheryl and I no longer will be married? Jesus doesn't address this. Let me say that clearly to you. He does not address that. He doesn't say marriage will cease. He says there will be no marrying or no giving in marriage in the resurrection. So my understanding is, if you're married and you want to hang out with that person, great. Some of you are probably like, yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Jesus is trying to get them to the real issue. Because the real issue at hand is not marriage. The real issue at hand is resurrection. It's resurrection. The Sadducees had fallen prey to one of the greatest errors or heresies that people can believe, and that's that this life is all there is. And Jesus spoke strongly against that. The the whole Bible does. Job, chapter 19, verse 26. Job, possibly the oldest book ever written. The oldest book that we have in the Bible. Job 19.26, he wrote, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. From the earliest days, Job had an understanding of resurrection. David did. Psalm 16, verse 10. 
In a verse that Peter will later apply to Messiah, but David, he's speaking prophetically, but he's also speaking of himself. He says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. I'm not staying dead. Psalm 23, verse 6, David says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David had some sense of, of resurrection, of eternal life. Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the Hebrew Scriptures were rife with talk about the resurrection, about an eternal life that was promised. And yet the Sadducees didn't buy it. Why? Because they didn't buy the Scriptures. Because outside of those first five books, they cut it off and they said, all the rest of that is bunk and we don't accept it. We will only accept it if it's part of the Torah law. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of the Torah. Verse 31. Regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken... Excuse me. What was spoken to you by God, quote, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus said, Have you not read? He says this multiple times. Have you not read? Did did you miss that chapter? Did you not see that verse? He holds people accountable for what they should know of the Word. And I'll tell you something, gang. The moment you accept Jesus and accept the Bible as His Word, you are accountable to everything. To everything that's in the Word. It's yours for the reading. It is yours for the feeding. So God bless you for being here tonight. Because prayerfully, hopefully, you're hearing some stuff maybe that you didn't know, but now you can own. Now you can say, yes, I get it, I know this. Okay, I understand that now. Have you not read, Jesus said? Scriptures were not given so some pontificating, pipe-smoking professors could sit around in their offices and rot in their libraries while everybody else wanders around in ignorance and error. The Bible was given to us so that we might know. So when Jesus says, have you not read, you can go, oh yeah, that was Matthew 13. Yeah, I did read that. Thanks for the reminder, Lord. Well, someone's going to say to Jesus, I just know it, someone's going to say, well, Pastor Rick said, and Jesus will go, Pastor Rick? Are you kidding? You bought everything he said? Because he said some stupid stuff, man. Someone's going to say, but my parents told me. And he's going to say, that excuse don't fly. You're accountable to the Word, gang. Know it. Be in it. Jesus takes the Sadducees to the pivotal moment when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. When he quotes God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What is Jesus' point? If... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, then God would have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. That's not what he says. I am the God of Abe, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I am still their God. They have not ceased to exist. And Jesus says, He's not the God of the dead. 
is the God of the living. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Did you catch that? When we're home in the body, absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight, and we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. What happens when a believer in Jesus Christ dies? They go directly to be with the Lord and they are with Him still until the rapture happens. When God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. And the dead, the neck cross, the dead bodies will rise. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and following. And we'll rise with them and all be joined in the air and we'll instantaneously be in our glorified bodies. What a day. This is our greatest hope and assurance in the Lord. No matter how bad your life gets, no matter how bad a moment may be tomorrow, you will resurrect to be with the Lord. If you die before He comes, you're going to be raised up. If you're alive when He comes, you're going to be raised up. That's the greatest hope that we have. And by the way, if I die before He comes, please don't pray for me to come back. Because if you do, I will haunt you your rest of your life. <laughs> the issue that concerned Jesus here was resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.50 I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. By the way, there is one marriage that holds true in the resurrection. And that's the marriage of the Lamb. Your marriage to Jesus. The marriage of the church with the Son of God. Again, I I give you this opinion. This is just my opinion. Please don't say Pastor Rick said. But Jesus does not teach that a husband and wife won't or can't be with each other in heaven. However, it's my personal belief that our intimacy in heaven with brothers and sisters in Christ, our intimacy with Jesus Himself and the presence of the Father will be so rich, will be so full, will be so absolutely amazing, it will far surpass the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, The greatest security you have ever felt in a marital state. It's going to be so much better, we won't miss a thing. The marriage of the Lamb. Well, the Pharisees come along now. The Herodians have been shut up. The Sadducees are now dumbfounded. And the Pharisees, not having yet learned their lesson, but probably tickled that Jesus so took out the Sadducees, they come back at Jesus, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, verse 36, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment in the law? Now the Pharisees had boiled the law down to 613 laws. 613 commands, each of which needed specifically to be kept. Of those 613, 248 were positive laws. 365 were negative laws. No wonder the Pharisees were such negative guys. They're trying to keep all this stuff. Then they took all these 613 laws, positive and negative, and they placed them into two more camps. 
There was the camp of heavy laws, serious. You know, and then there was the camp of the lighter fare. Still had to keep them, but they weren't quite as important as the heavy ones. You know, like not walking too far on the Sabbath. That's a heavy one. So they come to Jesus with the ethical or legal question. Which is the greatest? 613. You better get it right. You got a 1 in 613 chance here, Lord. Jesus is right on target. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Rather than focusing on the nitty-gritty of the law, one commandment over and above another, which was surely debated ad nauseum among the Pharisees, Jesus goes directly to the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And Jesus says, you want to keep the commandments, all 613? Love God and love people. And you'll keep them. Because every commandment, one way or another, is broken in either not loving God or in not loving people. Love God with your whole self. That's the first commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself is the second. And with these, Jesus sums up what, what we call the first and second tables of the law. The tables of the law, the two tablets, gang. The first of which held the laws relating to God, the first four commandments. And then the last half of the, of the Ten Commandments on the second tablet, holding the laws of God not toward God but toward man. How we love God and how we love man. It's broken down in the Ten Commandments. The first table being Godward. The second table being Manward. And you can't separate the two. They are inextricably linked. Your love for God and your love for people. Remember where we began tonight? You can't enter a relationship with Jesus without it changing every relationship in your life. John wrote in 1 John 4.21, This commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also, and it's the defining characteristic of our discipleship. Rather than trying to figure it all out, and I've been struggling with this, gang, I'll tell you what, the divorce issue. I'm not going to talk about that again, but I have been struggling with this big time, to the point that Cheryl can tell you that I've been having bad dreams. I have. I've been having dreams in the night of, of, of division and, and broken marriages and, and, and dealing with that and, and thinking about this over and over and over and, and, and not sure how, how as a pastor do I relate and respond when someone comes up to me and says, Hey, Rick, we want to get married. And maybe they have broken marriages in their background. What do I do with that? Especially knowing what I just taught a couple of weeks ago. And this afternoon, God said, You know what, Rick? You're not going to offend me if you will love me and if you will love people. And I'm trying so hard to get the nitty gritty down, but i got to know the answer for this one. Law number 597. Help me, Lord, to know this one. Love me, Rick. And love people. Let it be about that. And Jesus says the whole thing, it, it, it all depends. 
on loving God and loving people. If you can do that, you'll know what to do at the right time. He's such a good God. Such a loving and gracious Father. Come down to the fourth question. The Pharisees and Herodians asked. They're stumped. Sadducees ask, they're stumped. The Pharisees ask another one. Jesus answers perfectly, stumps them. And now Jesus asks a question. The royal question, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Christ Christos, Mashiach, the anointed one. What do you think? Whose son is he? (coughs) They said to him, Son of David. Great Jewish answer. And he said to them, Well, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him, Mashiach, if he calls the Christ Lord, how is he his son? How's that work? Jesus quotes from the most famous Messianic psalm in the Hebrew Scripture. Psalm 110. Let me read it to you real quickly here. Psalm 110. The psalm every Pharisee would know by heart. The psalm every Jewish leader, every rabbi, they would know this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) That's, That's some great teaching there. Genesis chapter 14, Hebrews chapter 7. Look those two up and figure out who Melchizedek really was when he came to Abraham in Genesis 14. And who the Hebrew writer indicates maybe what was going on there. I won't go into that. But you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which by the way was pre-law. Melchizedek was pre-law. The Lord is at your right hand, verse 5. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. The greatest messianic psalm. Psalm of Messiah the King. And yet it begins, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Interesting. Jesus says, So explain to me, guys. You're so sharp. You're so with it. You know the word. How can Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? And there's only one answer to that question. It is a theanthropic answer. What's that mean? Theos, God. Anthropy, man. It is a God-man answer. Only... Only someone who is both God and man can come before David and be after David. Jesus is talking about Himself. Revelation 22.16 He will later say, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the one David came from and I came from David. How does that work? Because I was before Him. I preceded Him. And I am after Him. 
born, what, 900, 1,000 years after David. The Pharisees knew this psalm. Jesus knew they knew it. It was the heart of their messianic theology, but by quoting it and posing this profound question, Jesus leaves them speechless. Verse 46. I love this verse. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Like my dad used to say, well, cut my legs off and call me shorty. I'm done. I got no. What do you say to that? The Pharisees are like, hey, you. The Sadducees. But. The Herodians. Everybody is left speechless. You know, there are some people who say, when I get to heaven, I got a few things I'm going to talk to God about. Me and God, we're going to sit down, we're going to have a little convo because I'm not real satisfied with some of what's been going on here on earth. So I'm going to sit down with God. And I'm going to give him what's for. I'm going to let him know where I've been dissatisfied. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's more likely you're going to be face down. Like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, you're going to be speechless. I will be speechless before the Lord. Some of us with our mouths hanging open... Others with our eyes closed, buried in in humble response to His glory. Makes me think back to verse 11. That when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. There's nothing he could say. If a person refuses God's robe of righteousness, His grace, if that is refused in favor of wearing my clothing of good works, gang, that person will have a chance to make their case before the Lord. But when they stand up and get ready to open their big mouth and tell God how He was wrong about them, Revelation 20 verse 12 says, the books of the deeds will be opened. And there in the presence of the truth and in the presence of God Himself, they won't have a thing to say. In fact, the truth is, there's only one thing a person can say when they see Jesus for the first time. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you have spoken those words, it's because you've seen Him. When did I see Him? You saw Him with your heart. You saw Him in faith. Jesus Christ is Lord. How do you know that? It's only given to you by the Father. Remember, Peter said it. He didn't know what he was saying. Jesus said it's been given to you from above, Peter. You're cute, but you're not smart. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those will be the words escaping our lips, and I guarantee it will be the only thing that we are going to be even capable of saying over and over and over, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that day is coming. And I encourage all of you, say it now. 
speak it with every breath because if you wait, if we wait to say it, then we will be rendered nothing but speechless. Amen? Father, You are good. Much more than that, You are glorious. And Jesus, once again, we are thrilled to sit here in the bleachers and watch You perform so amazingly. We watch You dodge every difficult question and give the perfect answer and then give Your own question that stumps the smartest guys in Israel. And we're amazed, Lord. And we truly are speechless at what we see. We are so... We're blown away by You, Jesus. Impressed by You. Just in awe of You. And it is wonderful to sit here together in Your presence and watch You at work. And Jesus, again I pray, and I pray this prayer so much. I pray it for myself. I pray it for my brothers and sisters here tonight. That our speech, Lord, will be seasoned with the name of Jesus. That our speech, Father, will be that of proclaiming the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And when people ask why we're able to handle the tough stuff in our lives, we can just say because Jesus Christ is Lord. And when people ask why we're so joyful, Lord, it's because we can say Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you more firmly establish that truth in our hearts, in our minds, in our faith tonight that we might walk out of here, even as we look at each other, we would just say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we praise You and worship You, Jesus, for that truth. Thank You for Your Word tonight. Embed it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.